topic for tonight is the canonization of the Bible. We're going to spend a few weeks on this, probably about three weeks on the canonization of the Bible. And uh, tonight we'll discuss what are the names of the Bible and what does that say about the, uh, the purpose of the Bible, at least in the eyes of the Jews who give them these names. What kinds of things would be included, what kinds of things would be excluded, although we'll, we'll talk about specific books next week and the week after, and now that you're here, we can get, we can get started, and uh, also, are there, are there differences in the sequence of books, and what does that tell us about how books entered into the canon of the Bible, and in what order? So the first pasuk we can quote is a, is a pasuk in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 2. Mishnat achat l'malcho, ani Daniel binoti basfarim. Mispar ha-shanim ha-shayad v'ra-shem l'yermiyahu ha-navi l'malot l'chavot Yerushalayim shivim shana. So Daniel uh, investigates the matter of the 70 years of exile that had been um, promised, or rather uh, predicted, by God to Yirmiyahu, to Jeremiah. And now the 70 years are coming to an end. But we have to calculate exactly when are the end of the 70 years. When is the end of the 70 years? And it's a, dis- it's a debatable point, because it depends how you want to calculate it. Do you want to calculate it from the first exile in 597 of Yechoniah? Do you want to calculate it from 586 and the destruction of the temple? Do you want to calculate it from the beginning of Babylonian rule? Many different possibilities. So the, in the book of Daniel, it says, Binoti Basfarim, I looked in the books. Well, what books? The book of Yirmiyahu. But Sfarim is a generic term. So anything that was written is a safer, and anything that written and is written is sacred. All books are holy, at least in the beginning. Now, holy as in there in the Bible, I'm not going to say that. But all the written works of our people in the early days are important. And only at a later time will there be distinctions between those which are really important and thus included in some kind of canon and those that are not as important or objectionable, they'll be excluded. So the next source we have is a Mishnah in Sanhedrin which we recite every week during this time of year at the beginning of a Perkyavot's uh, selection. Ko Yisrael yeshlam chelek la'olam haba Everyone has a portion in the world to come or rather, all of Israel is a portion of the world to come. Shana'amar, as it says, all your people are righteous. Okay. And the following people have no portion. If you say there's no resurrection of the dead based upon Torah, there's no Torah from heaven. Or you're a Epicurean, or I just generally call a heretic. Rabbi Akiva Omer Afakore Bisfarim Chitzonim. Anyone who reads from the external works. Sfarim Chitzonim. So, what are Sfarim Chitzonim? That's the question. Well, when Rabbi Akiva uses that expression, does he mean that any work which is not in the Bible is a Sefer Chitzon? Chitzoni? Is that, that's a maximalist definition of Sfarim Chitzonim that we're, our legitimate uh, library is limited to whatever is in the canon of the Bible. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that there are certain books which have been consciously rejected. 
not just they were written and nobody knew about them, but they're not in, but rather they were explicitly excluded because there's something bad about them. That's another way of looking at it. It's By the way, this has implications even to this very day. If you uh, want to follow a traditionalist curriculum in your yeshiva, in your day school, so what is out? What, what, what uh, brands you a heretic or condemns you to eternity in hell? Is it anything that's not in the Bible, or is it only those things which are known to be objectionable? Depends how you want to look at it. All right. Now, the idea of a Sefer Chitzoni, uh, a book which is on the outside, means that enough has been written that we need to make decisions about what's in and what's out. In the early days of uh, Jewish civilization, the Second Temple, there isn't that much literature. So everything is a possibility for inclusion in some kind of sacred literature. But you have enough, you reach a threshold, I have to make a decision, this is in, this is out. A similar thing happened with the oral law. How so? Give me the, the word that I'm looking for. What, what is the word for something that is out in the oral law? Brisa. The b'risa, exactly. You have the Mishnah, which is in. A redactor, an editor, a codifier of the, Mishnah, of the Tanaitic literature includes certain things. That is the Mishnah. Whatever is not included is out. Is baraita bara outside? So, for example, we have in the Gemara and Shabbos, Tani Rabbi Abau Kamid Rabbi Yochanan Kolam Akalim Peturin Chutz Michovlo Mavir Certain Halacha by Hilchos Shabbos Amalei Puk Tanali Brah. You take that brisa and take it out of the yeshiva. Take it outside. Chovlo Mavir Ain a Mishnah. What you just said is not a Mishnah. Now, Ain a Mishnah has a certain connotation in the Talmud as being uh, an unacceptable form of the text. But a really a brighter, that's what it was. It was an unacceptable form of the text. It doesn't mean it's totally wrong. In fact, we, we prove halachot from brises all the time. But it's not as canonical as a mishnah. Okay, I just bring that to show you how the, 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 the written Torah and the oral Torah have these um, parallels. Okay. But what is the name of the Bible? So, one name that we sometimes will use is... Mikra. What does Mikra mean? That which is read. That which is read. So scripture, the English word scripture, is that which is written. We're going to get to that. It's hakatuv. But Mikra is that which is read. Huh? So, so the question of whether the, the Hebrew shoresh, kuf resh aleph, means to recite or to read off of, a, off of a written text is a long discussion that uh, for halachic purposes usually means read out of a written text with exceptions drawn for things that are known like the, like the Shema, like Kriyat Shema need not be from a sitter because it's wi- widely known. But on the whole, you're not supposed to be reciting from memory that which is in the Bible. For, out of concern, you'll make a mistake. So Mikra is that which is read. Well, it may be that this word, identifying the Bible, relates to liturgical matters in the sense that the Torah, the five books of Moses, are read in their entirety in the synagogue, okay, on an annual basis, or in the, in the old days in Israel on a triennial basis, and the Nevi'im are also read. Now, are they read in their entirety? No. No, we don't read cover to cover any uh, of the major books of the Nevi'im. What do we read cover to cover? Yonah and Yom Kippur 
Ovadia for Haftor for Parshas Vayishlach. Every now and then, there's a, there's a small book that's read start to finish. But for the most part, we don't read the major books of the Bible start to finish. We read selections of them at, at, at certain junctures of the year. But because every single one of those books is at some point in time opened up and read liturgically, therefore the Bible is Mikra. But wait a second. What about the Ketuvim? Is the Ketuvim read in the synagogue? Okay, so the the uh, the Chamesh Megillot are in fact read, but most of those four out of the five are read on the basis of custom, not on the basis of law. Only Megillat Esther is a halacha of of deep antiquity. The Tehillim is part of the of the of the of the davening, but that's a later development. So when we say Mikra, it may be that the Torah and the Nevi'im are called Mikra because all of those books are at one point or another uh, part of the liturgy. And as for the hagiographer, the writings, the so-called Ketuvim, that was yet to be canonized and thus was not taken into consideration when determining the name for our sacred writings. Keep that in mind, the idea that the Ketuvim comes later and might not be part of the original package. Okay. Uh, The use of the word Mikra appears many times in the Mishnahic liter- uh, literature. For example, we have in Pirkei Avot, Omer, Ben Shanim La Mikra, Ben Eser Shanim La Mishnah. When you're five, you read the Bible. When you're ten, you read the Mishnah. When you're thirteen, you have Bar Mitzvah, fifteen, you learn Talmud, eighteen, you get married. So follow that order. You, you can't go wrong. Uh, now, so the assumption is that from five to ten, you will become proficient in the Bible, whatever the Bible might be. And for us, that's, that's a wider uh, corpus, including the whole Tanakh. Okay, now we have another expression. And that is, Kitve HaKodesh, the Holy Writings. The expression Kitve HaKodesh exists precisely because, at a certain point in time, you have those things which are Kodesh, and those things which are Chol, mundane, or uh, Hedyot, Hedyot uh, can have like a defamatory connotation, but it, it means mundane. It means not 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 special, not not sacred. Okay, so with the Mishnah in Shabbos, which talks about saving things from the fire, all the sacred writings you save them from the fire. Um, whether they're the books that we read from or the books that we don't read from. Now, the books that we read from are obviously the Chumash and the Nevi'im. What are the things that we don't read from? The Ketuvim. Alright. Now, why should you save these things? Because they're important. They're sacred. Now, do you you violate one of the Malachot of Shabbos in order to be able to save these books? No. But you violate certain rabbinic injunctions in order to save uh, holy writings. With the exception of the book of Esther, yeah. is there any significance because God's name is mentioned, so therefore you would save it from a Yes, prayer? yes. Because, uh, so the mission explains, V'afal pi sheketuvim geniza, even though they're written in any language, they require geniza because God's name is there. A sacred name is there. And why is it that we don't read from certain books? And the answer the, the Mishnah gives is because people won't go to the yeshiva, to the base medrash, if you were to read from the Ketuvim on Shabbos. Now, for those of you who haven't learned Gemara Shabbos, just a little backdrop, 
the, the custom was you'd go to a halachic lecture or a rabbinical lecture on Shabbos afternoon, uh, you know, the rabbi's shir before Minchatan. And the concern was that if you were allowed to, or it was popular practice to read from the juicy books of the Bible, you know, the back of the Bible with all the good stories, that what would happen? You'd open up your JPS Bible and you wouldn't go to the rabbi's shir. So therefore, don't read the ketuvim, go to the rabbi's lecture. Okay. Um, now, another name for the Bible is Torah. What does Torah mean? Okay, so the Hora'ah, instruction. What, to what do we, um, to what body of knowledge, say in this room here, would we apply the word Torah? Everything. Alright, so you could say, any, take a book off the shelf, any shelf in this room, it's Torah. That if you were to take it off the shelf, open it up and read it, you were mekayim the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. You fulfilled the mitzvah of study of Torah. Whether it was a Talmud, a Mishnah, a Ramban's commentary on the Chumash, a Perkei Avos, whatever it might be, you have done the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. But in the more limited sense, what is Torah? So the most limited sense, it might be a, a subsection of the Chumash, like a Zot Torah Ta'olah. This is the Torah of the Ola. Zot Torah Ta'mincha. Five lines out of the book of Leviticus. All right. A, a brief passage that is the Torah of something. Or, it's the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, what we call a Torah, a Torah scroll out of the Ark. But, it might also be the whole Tanakh, the Torah She'bichtav. That is a type of Torah, as opposed to the Torah She'be'alpeh, another type of Torah. So, we do find, um, in stray, stray references in the, in the Midrashic literature, of the Tanakh being referred to as Torah, we also find it in the New Testament, actually, in the book of John, chapter 10, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your Torah, I said ye are gods? Um, and the, the citation is from Tehillim, chapter 82, verse 6. Which is part of our davening. So if the New Testament is citing Tehillim and referring to it as Torah, and Tehillim is in the Ketuvim, it means that even the Ketuvim were occasionally regarded as Torah. Okay. Um, another expression is katuv, hakatuv. We find this a lot, especially in the Midrashic writings. So, for example, and even in the Mishnah, we find litol, If a person is eligible to take peya, the gifts for the poor, the corner of the field, but he doesn't take. He will not die of old age until he becomes a rich man and supports others. Meaning it's a promise, if you are very careful and don't even legitimately take payah, you'll die a wealthy man. And about such a person, the katuv says, what does it say? Right, part of our davening, part of the benching, and that's from the katuvim. Right, that's not from the Torah or the Nevi'im. And yet, it's referred to as the Katuv. Katuv. Truth be told, that the Katuv uh, is, not, is not the full term. Even though many times, Perky Yavos will say, Like, uh, if you see a, a nice tree in the field, and you stop your learning, and you say, Oh, how, what a beautiful tree is it? What's the punishment? It's like you deserve to, to, take your, to, to lose your life. 
ha-katuv. The katuv regards this person as though they were worthy of losing their life. What is the katuv? The Bible. But really, the katuv is a shortened expression. It should say ha-katuv ba fill in the blank, whatever name of the book. So, for example, we have another Mishnah about uh, Bikurim. Because of the verse that is in the Torah. So the Katuv actually is not the Bible. What is the Katuv? It's a verse in a book of the Bible. Which grammatically and linguistically makes much, much more sense. Okay. Let's say Musaf on Rosh Hashanah, Musaf on Yantif, and then we get. Some right, so you don't just have Kakatuv, it's Kakatuv Betorasecha. You name the book in which this, is, this, this verse is found. Okay. How do we know, from a halachic point of view, that a certain book has risen to the status of being sacred literature? Hot scroll makes a copy. That's true. But in, in the, uh, the parlance of the Tanaim, how do we know something has risen to that status? Metame eta yadaim. Renders the hands impure. So there's a lot of scholarly literature about what this means, renders the hands impure. That if you touch a scroll of sacred writings, your hands are suddenly impure. That's a, it's a rabbinic decree, because by Torah law, there's no such thing as part of the body being impure and part of the body being pure. Only by, by uh, uh, the legislation of the sages can you have your whole body being uh, free of impurity, being tahor, but your hands being tameh, the status of tshenila tumah, secondary impurity. And why did they do this? So there are all sorts of theories. But the primary one is... No, they didn't want people to store their holy writings near food. Because what happens if you store it near food? What's going to happen? The mice will come and eat it, and they'll, they'll tear a hole through the, through the parchment, and they'll leave droppings, and they'll disgrace the whole thing. Why might a person be tempted to store uh, their sacred writings near food? What kind of food? Grains. Masa. Truma. Because especially given the, the, the Kohanic monopoly over, over sacred learning, uh, in the early uh, biblical period, the average Israel didn't have access to, to, the, to, to Torah and to later books until much later on, so the, the Kohen who had Truma, which was sacred and had to be kept away from impurity, would be left together with the sacred scrolls. It was a convenient thing, but it led to problems and the, the, uh, the uh, destruction of the parchment, of the, of the Sefer itself. Therefore, if you touch the sacred scrolls, your hands will become impure, then you're not going to be able to touch Truma. Bad, separate them. Okay. What was the one exception? Uh, the one book, a sacred book, a copy of a sacred book that did not render the hands impure. One book. One copy of one book. What is that? Not, no. It's a specific copy. The copy of the Torah that was in the Azara was in the, 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 the temple courtyard. So the Mishnah tells us, Kol All the scrolls render the hands impure, except for the scroll that appears in the temple. Why? Because in the temple they didn't have these concerns about uh, the, the mice eating it and the like. And also there's a, there's a goal of not spreading impurity onto the temple mount. We generally speaking do not want to be mafish tumah, to, to spread uh, needlessly by rabbinic decree uh, more tumah. So, but in general... 
subsidiary copies of the Torah and of the writings render the hands impure. And next week and the week after, we will discuss specific books of the Bible about which the Tanaim and the Amoraim debated whether or not they render their hands impure because maybe they're not really in the Bible. Maybe they're out of the canon, despite us today in 21st century Judaism regarding them as being in the canon. Is that why when somebody has hard-wired Lila, uh-huh. they have to take a cloth when they want to okay. out the box? Okay, so in the, in the era when we cared about ritual impurity, that would explain it. Nowadays, it's simply out of, out of uh, in, in deference and respect to the sanctity of the scroll, we don't want to touch it directly. But yes, had it been an era of, uh, of widespread observance of Tuma Vitara, that would have been another reason. Okay. Now, um, eventually, eventually, we have this idea of the tripartite division of the scriptures. The Torah, the Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. But, that happens pretty late in the game. I'll quote you a Mishnah, which I've quoted here in the past, that tends to show that the Ketuvim were canonized much later than the Torah and the Nevi'im. And it's a Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah, which deals with the Musaf davening. The Mishnah tells us, When we daven in, the, in Musaf time on Rosh Hashanah, we have to cite verses from the Bible uh, that deal with kingship, remembrance, and the shofar. That's what we have today, our Musaf. Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri Omer, Imamar Shalosh Shalosh Bikulan If you said three of each uh, category, you're good, meaning uh, nine verses total as opposed to 30 verses total. And then it says you don't, you don't mention verses that deal with sadness, Puranut. And finally, Matchil Ba Torah, you begin citing these verses by quoting from the Torah, Umashlim Banavi, and you conclude with the prophets. Rabbi Yossi, whereas Rabbi Yossi said, if you conclude with the Torah, that's also okay. And in fact, that's what we do. We do Torah, Ketuvim, Nevi'im, Torah. 3, 3, 3, 1 equals 10. Now, what's out of order here? Why are the Ketuvim before the Nevi'im? If the Tanakh is Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. The answer is that in the old days, when the liturgy was first being composed when the Musaf Rosh Hashanah was in its infancy, all there was in the Bible was Torah and Nevi'im. So, Matchil ba Torah umashlim ba Navi. Makes perfect sense. You start with Torah and you end with the prophets. But, once the Ketuvim was added to the, to the canon, so what are you going to do? In order to satisfy, start with this and end with that, but you want to include Ketuvim, your only choice is to put it in the middle, which is out of order, but so be it. But since it was out of order and odd, what did Rabbi Yossi say? Let's not conclude with the Nevi'im anymore. Let's conclude with Torah. Start with Torah, end with Torah. Then you get the first home game, you get the last home game. Game one, game seven, this, the Torah is, is going to anchor the whole thing. But that, this Mishnah can be seen in, uh, implicitly as a, as a proof text for the late uh, canoni- canonization of uh, the Ketuvim. Okay. Now, let's go to a source that also talks about Torah and Nevi'im and leaves out the Ketuvim for whatever reason. We'll have to address why. It's a Mishnah, it's a Tosefta Baba Basra. Apatropin, if you are uh, an executor of the estate of an orphan, and the parents died, kid is a minor, there's an estate that has to be taken care of, and you're the executor, the Apatropos, the custodian. You can take truma and miser from the fields uh, uh, that are growing produce that belong to the orphans. 
ומוכרים בתים סדר דוכמים, בהמה עבדים ושפחות, להאכיל יתומים. You're allowed to do commerce in terms of real estate and slaves and animals uh, in order to feed these orphans. לעשות להם סוכה, or to allow them to perform מצוות. For instance, they have to sit in a סוכה. They have to have a lulav. Tzitzis. וכל המצוות האמורות בתורה, and to do all the commandments of Torah, in other words, you have to not just concern yourselves with their, um, with their uh, material needs, but also their religious needs. V'liknot b'hem, and to buy for them Sefer Torah Unavim. A Torah scroll and the scrolls of the Nevi'im. Now, bear in mind that in antiquity, when we didn't have printed books, so it, w- it was actually a relatively common thing to have scrolls of the Nevi'im. Today it's very uncommon. The Red Shul has uh, the scrolls for the, for the Nevi'im and for the Ketuvim, I think. They might have the whole Tanakh, as far as I know. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a thing that's... It's new, it's new. Yeah. Right, but in, in, in America, it, it, it was not a big thing in, 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 in the last generations or so, but now it's coming back. Okay, so the point is that the Apotropos has to buy Torah Nevi'im. But where is the Ketuvim? Nowhere to be found. So you could explain this in one of two ways. You could explain it, number one, that this Mishnah, is an, this Tosefta is an old halacha, a very old halacha, that predates the canonization of the Ketuvim, and therefore the author of this halacha doesn't know about Ketuvim, because it's not part of the, the holy writings yet. Or, you could say what? That Nevi'im means what? What we call Nevi'im and Ketuvim. The Nach. It, it was colloquially just the Nevi'im. So I'm not saying it. I'm saying a person could claim that. Well, I'll, I'll quote some other sources that might lead in that direction. But if you can claim uh-huh. that, then you can go back to Torah, Kesuvim, Nevi'im, Torah. Yeah. You could say, well, Nevi'im is Kesuvim also. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this is the right answer. Another, another possible answer is that the Ketuvim, even if part of the canon, are not as important and therefore the Apotropos need not pay for scrolls. Uh, but the problem with that, however, is that there are many other sources in the rabbinic literature that speak of the importance of learning the, the Judaic curriculum A to Z of Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, Mishnah, Talmud, Halachot, and Agadot. That every category of religious learning uh, is important enough to warrant your attention. So I don't think that this Tosefta would say that the, that, that the Apotropos doesn't have to spend money on Ketuvim because it's not important. I'd be reluctant to say that it's almost like a sacrilege. Okay. Question. Yeah. Septuagint is re- goes way back to antiquity. Yes, I mean, about the two about two fifty BCE. But I mean, all, all the stuff. All okay, so it was not done at one time. The, the Septuagint was done on the Torah, on the Torah alone. Later, it was done on the Nevi'im and on the Ketuvim, but the Ketuvim came last, and it was done, and that was done very late. And the the the, the product that we have is heavily influenced by the Church. Uh, um, but the early product, which was uh, heralded by the by the Jewish community of Egypt as being like a life a spiritual lifesaver, and was 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 celebrated by by Philo's community, was Torah, not the later books. Even though eventually those books were translated. Okay. Was that also indicative of, uh, of an element of assimilation? Yes, they didn't know Hebrew. They didn't know Hebrew. Okay. We have another another source. This is the Sifri on Devarim. About Ben Sora Omora. What is the Ben Sora Omora? The rebellious son. 
So, Sorer al divrei Torah, umore al divrei Nevi'im. He uh, goes against the words of the Torah, and he goes against the words of the Nevi'im. What happened to the Ketuvim? It's not there. So again, you can give, the, you give various answers. Either this is an old Sifra, an old Halakhic Midrash that predates the canonization of Ketuvim, or the Nevi'im equals Nevi'im and Ketuvim, or there's nothing in the Ketuvim to rebel against. In other words, where is the law? The law is in the Torah. Are there laws in the, in the, in the Nevi'im? Uh, scattered here and there, or there, are, there are legislative portions. But in the Ketuvim, not really. He's guilty even without violating. Okay, all right, that's another answer. Okay, now let's go to the New Testament. Yes, you're going to go into it later. But could you give a timeline? When was the canonization? So next week we're going to talk about that in depth. Now we're just going to get the nomenclature down. So in the, in the New Testament, we find a, an expression that it repeats itself uh, a few times. That of the law and the prophets. So Matthew 5.17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather I have come to fulfill them. One of the famous lines of the New Testament. Um, okay. <laughs> All right. Only Alan can get away with that. So... Uh, why is this relevant for us? Because here, Jesus is saying that he's not uh, destroying the content of, of faith, but rather he is fulfilling. He is the, 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 the ultimate fulfillment of faith. And what is the faith? The law and the prophets. So in first century uh, common era... We don't know if those things Okay, but it's written in Matthew, and Matthew is around the year 80 or 90. Uh, assuming Mark is around the year 70, and Matthew is about 80, 90, then, and, and Luke Acts is about 100, and John is 150. It doesn't matter whether Jesus ever said this. What matters is that in the late first century, a, a Jewish author is writing about the Law and the Prophets as being the name of our great literature. Okay. Matthew 7.12 So in everything do to others what you would have them do to you for this is the sum of the law and the prophets. What does that remind you of? Rabbi? Akiva and Hillel. Okay. He says it in Pasha's Kedoshim too. So and whether you want to take the positive spin or the negative spin. A little Pasha Shavu, yes, it's true. So uh, the point is, what does Hillel and what do Hillel and Rabbi Akiva say about or Don't do unto others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. Zeklau Gadoba Torah. So what is Torah? What, what is the, the package of, of our religious tradition? The, the law and the prophets. Torah univim. At least for a first century author. Okay? The last source from the New Testament, and we'll get back to, to Judaism. Uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. Uh, what does this mean? It means that until John the Baptist, Judaism was Judaism. It was what God wanted of the Jews. But since John the Baptist, and certainly since the, 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 um, the public career of Jesus, what is uh, the religion of God? The good news, the gospel. 
which is not the old law and prophets, okay, but rather the Mishagas of the New Testament, and everyone's forcing their way in. Many new proselytes to, to Christianity. What's the relevance for our purpose? That the law and the prophets are the old religion. The Torah Univim equals Judaism, at least to an author like Luke. Okay. Now let's go back to, uh, to rabbinic literature. Another term for books, books of the Bible, but not all the books of the Bible, is Kabbalah. What does Kabbalah mean? Receiving. The received tradition. Okay. So, in, in modern parlance, Kabbalah is in the mystical literature of Judaism, the Zohar and the like. But in, in, in the Talmud, what is Kabbalah? Kabbalah refers to the Nevi'im and Ketuvim, the books of the Bible beyond the Torah. So you have Divrei Torah and Divrei Kabbalah. Where does this come up? Usually when a legal matter is derived from a pasuk in the Nevi'im or Ketuvim. So what is the halachic standing of something derived from a later book of the Bible that's not in the Torah? Is it on par with the Torah? So it shouldn't be. But is it somehow more important than, let's say, an enactment of the sages, a dinder Maybe yes. What's the classic example of that? How the Divrei Kabbalah is like a halfway house between Divrei Torah and, and Divrei Sofrim? So Megillah. And, sp- and I have spoken about this in the past. How many times do we read the Megillah on Purim? Twice. Twice. Which one is Divrei Kabbalah and which one is Divrei Sofrim? Kabbalah is the morning. So the Kabbalah is the morning. The, the, the Bible, or it's the, an implication of the Bible, is you have to read the Megillah in the day of Purim. And the Divrei Sofrim, the rabbinical matter, is that you read the Megillah at night. So the Kabbalah is the, is the Bible minus the Torah. Okay. There are other passages in rabbinic literature that give the impression that Torah is the five books of Moses and Mikra is actually the Nevi'im and maybe also the Ketuvim. And that Mikra does not include the Torah. I'll give you a Sifri Devarim. Okay. Davar Zu Torah. Hashem Kanani Reshit Darko. Sadai, Zem Mikra. So this is from the Pashat Ha'azinu, from the Song of Ha'azinu, and a verse is being exegetically interpreted to mean that there's Torah, there's Mikra, there's Mishnah, and Talmud. So Mishnah and Talmud, I understand. The Mishnah is the, the Tanaitic work, and the Talmud is the Amoraic work of the Gemara, what we call Gemara. But Torah and Mikra? I thought Mikra included Torah. Well, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's Nevi'im and Ketuvim. Uh, you have another source like that in Bereshis Rava, uh, based upon a pasuk in uh, Parshas Bereshis about the four rivers that come out of the Garden of Eden, All right, where it says Sham Habedolach Evan Hashoham, that out of one of the rivers was the was the Bedolach uh, Bedilium and Evan Hashoham the, the the expensive stones. So it says Melamed She'ein Torah Ketorat Eretz Yisrael. There's no Torah like the Torah of Israel. Um, so, That the Torah was in one category, that's like Zahav, 
and the Evan Hashoham is Mikra, Mishnah, Talmud, Tosefta, and Agada, which is basically the kitchen sink, but everything except Torah. So Mikra does not equal Torah, it equals Nevi'im and Ketuvim. All right. One last little source about this. Remember we said that the, the, uh, the Mishnah talks about the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah and leaves out the Ketuvim. But the halacha is to include the ketuvim in the middle between Torah and Nevi'im, out of order. The Tosefta actually has all three. The Tosefta says, Hamatcha matcha b'shel Torah, Omisayim b'shel Torah, V'omashal Nevi'im b'shel ketuvim ba'emsa. You say Nevi'im and ketuvim in the middle. So Nevi'im comes before ketuvim. What does this show to you? That the Tosefta, which postdates the Mishnah by some length of time, we don't know exactly how long, and knows about the ketuvim because the Ketuvim were canonized at some point between the codification of that Mishnah and the writing of the Tosefta, recognizes that the order is Tanakh, Torah Nevi'im Ketuvim. So we have a, a, a hint at the chronology here that the Tosefta comes into being sometime in the mid-third century, and the Mishnah, although Rabbi Yehuda Hanasil is around the year 200, that, piece, that particular text may have been a, a century older than that, some point between the writing of that old Mishnah and the writing of the Tosefta, the Ketuvim are canonized. So, in the common era, pretty late in the game, all right, the, the, uh, the traditionalists wouldn't agree to that. They'd say the Anche Knesset Gedola canonized everything, but that, that simply isn't the case. Okay, now, let's go to certain uh, passages in the rabbinic literature that talk about um, the importance of all three parts of the Tanakh. Ben Azai Hayayoshe Vidorish. Ben Azai was sitting and expounding uh, the matter of the Merkava. What is the Merkava? Yecheskel's chariot. Okay. Ata Amalehen. So someone asked him, "Are you dealing with the Maisim Merkava?" Amalehen. Love no. Elamachris divrei Torah lenavim unavim leketuvim. I am expounding upon words of Torah and finding them in the Nevi'im, and words of the Nevi'im and finding them in the Ketuvim. What's the idea here? That there is a common thread, which, which uh, a, a, a literary thread, that goes through Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, and that it makes sense that these particular books, in these three big chunks, are part of one major corpus. That they were put in the canon for a reason, that there's the common thread. And, of course, the, the implication is that those things which were excluded say things which are otherwise and are excluded because of their objectionable content. All right? We have another source, Dvaram Rabbah. How should a person study Torah? All right? they, should, they should read this line when they discuss the curriculum in the yeshivas. Techila, Omrim Lo, Techila Karb Megillah. First, you read out of like a primer, a Megillah. <coughs> what is a Megillah? A Megillah is less than a Sefer. A Sefer, okay, in, this, in the Aaron Kodesh, there's a Sefer Torah. It's got from the base of Bereshis to the Lamed of Lene Kol Yisrael, Deuteronomy chapter 34. It's got the whole thing. Five books of Moses. A Megillah is a section, a small section. They say about the, about the Torah itself, that it was, it was written Megillot, Megillot. It was written piece by piece until it was all put together. So the primer in elementary school, when you're in kindergarten, first grade, is not the full Chumash. It's a small section, a small, a small book, maybe just voracious, or maybe just... Uh, that's a later European thing. Okay, so... You want to get them bored while they're young. <laughs> now, after this Megillah, Achar Kach, Achar Kach, 
Then you learn the Sefer. What is the Sefer? The Sefer Torah. Then the Prophets. Then the Writings. And when you finish the Mikra, which by the way means that the whole Tanakh is called Mikra, then you go to the Talmud. And then you go to the Halachot, the Laws, and the Agadot, the Storytelling. Which, by the way, goes to show you uh, that in the, in the worldview of the sages, the halachot have primacy over the agadot. That you need to know law more than you need to know homilies and storytelling. Of course, the reality was that people preferred the, the agadot because your average person doesn't like legalese and technical minutiae. They want to hear something that draws the ear. And so, in fact, this was never really followed uh, to, the, you know, to, to the letter. But in the ideal world, that's what a person would do. The, 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 the little snippets of Bible, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, Mishnah, Talmud, Halachot, Agadot. Okay. Another source. Gemara Kedushin. Amale Kara Ana. We had this in Dafyomi about a week and a half ago. Let's say a person wants to betroth a woman. And, and in order to impress her that she should agree to this betrothal, he says, I am a student of Torah. Or I am a student of the Talmud. Or I'm a student of the scriptures. Or I'm a reader of the scriptures. So if he says, Kara'ana, I read the scriptures. What does he actually have to do, or be able to do, in order for this statement to be truthful, and thus the Kiddushin valid? So Gemara says, Adikari oraita neviye uketuve bidiyuka. Until this person can read the Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim with accuracy, with precision. So it can't be that you open up uh, 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 a Tanakh with, with, the, with the vowels you know, and read it with the, with the vowels, but rather you'd have to be able to open up a scroll without the vowelization, just the letters, and do a competent job in reading it aloud. But there were, be, because there were no vowels then. So yeah, you had to be able to lane the Bible. But does reading imply understanding? No, reading? it just means reading. just means reading. I know plenty of good Bali Kriya who don't know what they're reading. Uh, when I was 15, I was in that category myself. All right, I, I went through the whole Torah multiple times before I knew what I was talking about. Um, now, interestingly, instead of the Tanakh, it's the Anach. Not Torah Nevi'im and Ketuvim, but Oraita Nevi'im and Ketuvim. And in the early rabbinic writings, uh, the Gaonic period and early Rishonim, uh, every now and then you find instead of the, 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 the acronym of Taf Nun Chav Sofit, it's Aleph Nun Chav Sofit, Anach. And there were even interpretations of what that word means. It's not an acronym, but it's an actual word. But it's, it's based upon an Aramaic uh, version of the, of the acronym. Okay. We have a Gemara in Shabbos, which uh, deals with the, the revelation at Sinai, the Theophany. Uh, this is a, a Gemara that's commonly studied on the night of Shavuos, Tikkun El Shavuos, Shabbos 88a. Berich Rachmana, blessed be God, the Yahiv Orion Talitai, who gave the threefold Torah, Le'am Talitai, to the threefold nation, Ayyadei Talitai, by the hand of the third, Biyom Talitai on the third day, Biyacha Talitai in the third month. So, what does that mean? Explain that one to me. Alright, so let's go through it slowly. Orion the threefold Torah, is Torah Naviim Ketuvim. This, now, 
was a, was a threefold Torah given at Sinai to Moses? No, but of course in, in the, the literature we have these exaggerated statements that, that uh, to Moshe Rabbeinu at Mount Sinai was given the tone of Yimtuvim, Alachot Agadot, Tamid Vatik Lomar, anything that a disciple will later say, the whole kit and caboodle, the whole thing was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Uh, it's a little bit of exaggeration, but it's a, it's a common theme. So the threefold Torah is the Tanakh. What's La'am Talitai, the threefold nation? Kohanim Levim Yisraelim. What is Al-Yedei by the hand of the third person? Moshe. How is Moshe the third? Miriam, Aaron, Moshe. And how is it the third day? Sivan. Not the third day of Sivan, but rather <coughs> Yom HaShlishi of separating from the Isha, Al-Tik Shulisha. Uh, on the third day from the beginning of preparation then was the revelation third month Nisan E.R. Sivan okay fine um, now another way in which the rabbinic literature likes to tie together the three aspects of the Bible uh, is to say that something can be proven something can be proven Min ha-Torah, min ha-Nevi'im, min ha-Ketuvim. From Torah, from Nevi'im, and, and writings. Um, we actually have a, like a, a version of that in, in the davening. Where do we have it in the davening? In the Pitam HaKetoros, we have that. Um, uh, where you find God's humility in, the, in Torah, Nevi'im, and writings. Uh, but uh, m- many things are proven with proof texts from all three, all three types. Okay. How many books are there in the Bible? That's the next major question. So, if you, if you were to count up the number of books based upon the English language uh, translations of the Hebrew Bible, you come up with a number, it's like in the 30s, or the high 30s. But the Jewish tradition doesn't say that at all. What's the Jewish tradition? 24. 24. The Haftal Kitveh Kodesh. Was that always the Jewish tradition? No. So, in the early days... There were 22 books of the Bible. And I'll read you a passage that appears in Josephus in Against Apian. Against Apian, uh, Contra Apionum, was Josephus' small little work which he produced to counter the anti-Semitic uh, screeds of the Alexandrian anti-Semite Apian, who lived in the, in the generation of Philo, a good 50 years before Josephus was writing. And he says the following, We have 22 books containing the history of all time. Uh, it's interesting that Josephus begins his little snippet about the Bible by saying that it has the history of all time. Bear in mind he has a Greek audience who's interested in world history and would be impressed by the idea that this eastern barbaric people known as the Jews actually had composed a history of the world of all time. Okay? I mean, in, in, in later, in modern Jewish history, we have a similar kind of thing. Who produced the world history of the Jews? So Gretz produced the history of the Jews, Geschichte der Juden, but who produced the, produced the world history of the Jews? Shimon Dubnov, Simon Dubnov. It was the Weltgeschichte uh, der Juden, the world history. Just to, to even be more grandiose in the title, but also the, the, the substance was a little different. The idea that the Jews are at the center of the drama of the world, and we know what happened. Okay, so books that are justly believed in. Here Josephus says they're justly believed in. Remember, Josephus never uh, claimed to be an atheist or an agnostic or, 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 or a denier of his Jewish faith, he, 
he rebelled against Jewish nationalism and was a turncoat, but to, to his own self be true, he believed as a Jew. And, and he wants to tell the, the world that it's, it's okay to believe in the veracity of these books called the Hebrew Bible. Now, And of these, five are the books of Moses, which comprise the law and the earliest traditions from the creation of mankind down to his death. That's pretty accurate. Then, from the death of Moses to the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, the successor of Xerxes, the prophets who succeeded Moses wrote the history of the events that occurred in their own time in 13 books. So, 5 plus 13 equals 18. The remaining four documents comprise hymns to God and practical precepts to men. So, there are three categories for Josephus. But he doesn't refer to them as necessarily Tonavim Ketuvim. He refers to them as the five books of Moses, okay, Torah, and then books of history written by prophets. Not prophetic books that deal with predictions of the future, but books of history, 13 of them written by so-called prophets, and then four books that are about wisdom uh, and hymns to God. People in antiquity, uh, I wouldn't call them gullible, but they were, they were believers. Today we're very skeptical of everything. But in ancient, the ancient world, just because you were of one nationality doesn't mean you denied the legitimacy of the, of the, the important writings of another national group even if they claimed it had religious significance, you could accept it as being the work of great scholars. Okay. You can say that, but you're still not going to say the world history if the Jews have wrote about the Jews and the Jews didn't write about the Greeks. All right, so there are things that are left out, of course. But in other words, what Josephus is trying to get across is whatever you read here is reliable. It may not be everything. It may not be about Romulus and Remus and the founding of Rome in 76 BCE because they didn't know about that, but whatever it says is, is trustworthy. Okay, so Josephus way, has. Do we yeah. know what the reaction was from the leadership of the side? Alright, so on this very point, Origen, the church father, and Jerome, the later church father, accepted Josephus' words as accurate, meaning there are 22 books, 22 books of, the, of the Bible. And it's a tripartite division along the lines you see here which is not exactly the, the, the divisions that we have in our Tanakh. Mm-hmm. We have three, but we have Nevim and Ketuvim not broken up along uh, 13 and 4. Okay, but in any event, 22 is not 24. What's missing? What was missing from Josephus's Bible? Anything? Maccabees. Let's assume Maccabees that whatever is not in our Bible, whatever is not in our Bible, was also not in his and that there are two books that are in our Bible that are somehow not listed or not recorded as being part of his Bible. Was that Esther? Uh, Esther was one of them, I'm guessing. Maybe it's Shir Okay, so let's find out. Let's go to a Gemara in Baba Basra. Now, how could a Gemara in Baba Basra tell us an answer to this question about what's missing from Josephus' Bible? Well, bear with me and we'll find out. Where is that? Yud Gimel yeah. Tanarabana. Madbik Adam Torah Kechad. You are Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir says you are allowed to stick together, Madbik, like Devik, glue. You're allowed to stick together in one package the Torah Navim and Ketuvim. You can have a Tanakh and a scroll. That's what he's saying. 
Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Torah b'fnei Nevi'im b'fnei atzman, Ketubim b'fnei atzman. Yehuda says, no, each of the three uh, elements of the so-called Tanakh has to be separate, b'fnei atzman, on its own. V'chachamim omrim, kol echad ve'echad b'fnei atzmo. Each one by itself. What is, each, what is kol echad ve'echad b'fnei atzmo? Each separate, each separate book. So, so whereas Rabbi Yehuda said you could have Nevi'im, or you could have Ketuvim, the Chachamim are saying you need to have Yirmiyahu, Yishayahu, Yecheskel, Malachim, not Nevi'im in its totality. Okay. The Amar Rabbi Yehuda, Ma'aseb Baitus Ben Zunin, there was an episode involving Baitus Ben Zunin, who's a famous figure in the, this period, Shehayulo Shmona Nevi'im Medubakim Ke'echad, Api Rabbi Lazar Ben Azariah. He had eight prophets that were, that were lumped together in one volume on the basis of a ruling of Lazar Ben Azariah. V'yeshomrim, Lo Hayulo Ela Echad Ve'echad Bifne'atzmo. But others say, they know each one was separate. Amar Rebbe, Rebbe said, Someone brought to us a, t- a Tanakh, which was in one volume, and we declared it kosher. So, how does this answer the question about Josephus having 22 books? He had 24, except he didn't know it was 24. Because he, he bound things, there were things were bound together. The question is, what was bound together? Answer, or at least we speculate the answer is, that Eicha was part of Yirmiyahu, and Ruth was part of Shoftim. Shoftim. It's an addendum to the book of Judges. Okay? Now these are all very reasonable. And especially if the Ketuvim as a unit is canonized much later, so you don't have any uh, special regard for the, the, um, the Megillot as being in its, its own section, rather the Megillot are, are floating in the air, in the Luft. And what are you, where are you going to put them down? So, it makes sense to put Shvodah Shoftim with Shoftim, and it makes sense to put a book about lament, lamenting the loss of the Temple in a book of, uh, about the, uh, authored by the Prophet who predicted the destruction of the Temple and who lived through it. Okay. But it seems strange because if you have Shoftim, which is part of the five books of Moses, and you're going to... No, no, no. Shoftim is Nevi'im. Nevi'im is Shonim. You think the Pasha shoved him? Okay. All right. So, now Amar Rebbe Levi. So we have a Shmos Rabbah, a midrash that says the following. Running out of time. Okay. Amar Mishim Ben Lakish Ma Kalazu Mekoshetet BeChavdal Minei Tachshitin. Just as a bride is adorned with twenty-four pieces of jewelry, so so too, Kach Tamid Chacham. So to a scholar. Must be adept at you know the twenty-four books. So the adornment of a scholar is his knowledge of the twenty-four books of the Bible. Don't tell that in the yeshivas today, because then everybody would be naked. All right, they don't know the Bible; they know the, the Talmud. But in, in, in the in the glory of yesteryear, the Jewish scholars they knew that Bible cold, and even in the Sephardic countries until very recently, they knew the Tanakh with with great accuracy before going on to uh, the Talmudic studies. Alright, then we have another Medrash, Bamibar Rabba, Amar Barabirachia, Amar Anukom Masmerot, Ven Ktivala Mishmarot, Mamishmot Kunab Leviachavdal, Asram Chavdal. Why the 24 books of the Bible? To correspond to the 24 watches of the Kohanim. The, the, the Kohanic uh, class was divided into 24 groups, rotating through the temple two weeks a year. Right? And so, just as there are 24 of those, there are 24 books of the Bible. What does one have to do with the other? Nothing. 
We're just noting that the number 24 has significance in various aspects of Judaism. It's like, why did Achashverosh rule over 127 provinces? Because Sari Yimeinu lived to be 127 years old. One has one to do with the other? Nothing. But one of the Rebbe's said it in the yeshiva to wake kids up because it would sounded cute and it was an absurdity, so they would, they would stop falling asleep. All right. Okay, so, now, what about uh, canonization of the Bible appearing in the Bible itself? Is there any evidence in the Bible itself that there was a process of canonization? Yes. Where? I don't know. <laughs> okay, so, though, so, so, so those, those who, who are recipients of my weekly email... Should, should know the answer to this question because I wrote about it no less, uh, less than a month ago. I'm up to Vayera. Just before, just before Pesach, actually, on Shabbos Agadol, I wrote about this topic. What did I write? So everybody's not reading my emails. Uh, okay. All right. If you're not getting the emails, you, you give me your email address after the class. So in Malachi, which is the Haftorah for Shabbat Hagadol, the, end, the last verse ends on a down note, okay? That that God will destroy the world if, uh, if uh, the, the, uh, the hearts of the fathers and the sons are not uh, brought together. Okay, so, the, the, so the, the, the immediately preceding verse is... Behold, I send before you Elijah the prophet, uh, before the day of, of, of God's awesome and mighty judgment. Okay, and we, we repeat that line at the end, even though it's not the last line, to end on a, on a favorable note. So, Malachi ends with Elijah the prophet. Why? Why is Elijah herald, heralding the coming of the Messiah? So, and this is, by the way, the basis for you know, Eliyahu at the Seder with a cup of wine, all the, 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 um, the legends about Elijah being a, mess, a proto-Messianic figure, it's all based upon this line of Malachi. What's it doing here? Answer, go to the previous verse. Previous verse says, Zichru Torat Moshe Avdi, Remember the Torah of Moses, my servant, that I commanded him at Chorev, uh, on all Israel laws and statutes. So, the modern scholarly theory is that the last three lines of the book of Malachi were not written by Malachi, but rather were written by the redactor of the broader package of the Nevi'im, and it was written so that people should accept as canonical, whatever that means, the totality of the Nevi'im. So what do you do? You say, remember the Torah of Moses. The Torah is the constitution of the Jewish religion. It's been accepted since the days of Ezra and Nehemiah as binding upon our people. Okay? Uh, there was the covenant in the book of Nehemiah where we agreed that we would live by the, by the Torah of Moses and nobody can dispute that. All right, so that's binding. That's the first part of the Tanakh. Torah of Moses. What about the Nevi'im? Maybe only the Torah is valid and everything subsequent to Torah is to be ignored. By the way, who adopted that approach? Tzedokim. The Tzedokim. They said only Torah. All right, not, not oral Torah, not later books of the writings, only the Torah because of the covenant in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. So the redactor of the Nevi'im says, remember the Torah of Moses, that's one thing, and also the books of the prophets. Because Elijah has many parallels with Moses, 
an episode of Mount Sinai, Mount Chorev, 40 days and 40 nights, being fed by the raven, is a, and not, not eating 40 days, okay, uh, um, all sorts of uh, going to the well, in many, many uh, facets of their life, Moses and Elijah have parallels. So, God is going to send Elijah before the coming of the, of, of the Day of Judgment, which means that his, his works and the works of the Nevi'im are to be accepted just as the Torah of Moses was accepted. That's the theory about a coda, an addendum, uh, an appendix, so to speak, to the, the Nevi'im uh, at the end of Malachi. Okay, what about in the Ketuvim? Where do you have that in the Ketuvim? What's the, the parallel in the Ketuvim? And liturgically, it's the same thing. We do the same thing. I just gave away the answer. I just gave away the answer. Liturgically, we do in the Ketuvim the same thing we do for the Haftorah of, of, of Shabbos Agadol. Where? When? What books of the Bible are end on a sad note, so we, we, we end them instead by repeating the second to last line? Eicha, and what else? Kohelet, there's your answer. Kohelet is the last book of the Bible, according to this theory. What do we say? The end of the matter okay, is fear the Lord and observe the precepts because this is kol hadam, all of man. Alright? What's the preceding verse? Be careful, my son. There is no end to the making of books. And it's going to be the weariness of flesh. So what is the author of Kohelet, or rather the author of the addendum on Kohelet saying? Don't write any more books. So if you try to write more books, they're not going to be in the Bible. This is the end of it. Self davar. Genug. Enough. So the canonization of Scripture is, the, uh, is, is, is uh, implied in the last few lines of Kohelet, just as it's implied in the last few lines of Malachi. Well, but is Kohelet the last book of the Bible? So tune in next week where we discuss what is the order of the books and what does that tell us about when they were written and when they were accepted. See you next week.